Lauren read this passage for us last week, and I had a, a, a lot of notes on the section that I'm going to preach on this morning. So we return to Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. That final phrase we looked at last week, that's really the, the summary of all that Jesus was teaching to his disciples. And we can easily take this passage and these instructions out of context. We put them in their context last week. If you missed it, I won't re-preach that message. But we tried to put them into their context. And today, a little more of a topical message, hopefully within that context. And I think you'll see why it may be important for us to discuss. Let's play a little word association. You can do it in your head or aloud, depending on your comfort level. Opposites. So if I say up, you would say down. And you know I'm, I'm going to trick you, right? So you're really hesitant. You're not going to say this out loud anyway. But do it in your head or whisper it to the person next to you. So if I say hot, you say cold. Yeah, see, very confident there. We're not so sure if that's the opposite that he's going for. When I say light, you say dark. When I say heaven, you say there we go. Earth. We got, uh, we got someone sharp, right? You knew it. So, but your reflex is to say hell, I think. I, even my reflex is to say hell, at least in how I was raised and brought up, that that's the, that's the counterpart to heaven. It's heaven and then hell. And really, in Scripture, it's not the counter, counterpart. If you search heaven and hell together in any kind of search engine or concordance, uh, you, it'll return a couple of verses in the, in the King James and a few other translations which translate sky as heaven and Sheol, the grave, as hell. And then those would come together. But just a couple, even, even then, with all translations before you, all English translations before you. If you search heaven and earth, it will return hundreds and hundreds of verses. That's the counterpoint. That's the juxtaposition uh, in a biblical perspective. It's heaven and earth that are countered one to another. So perhaps this title, the title of this sermon should have been Heaven and Earth or anything but heaven and hell, but I put a question mark on the end of that, and you say, why even, why even a sermon on hell? It's not really. It's a sermon on, on heaven, but this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark that that word hell shows up in our English translations. Three times in this section that you maybe heard read, Mark 9, 42 through, through 48, that's it. That's it. That's the only time Jesus mentions hell. Perhaps 
your assumption is that he's talked about hell a lot more. So certainly it must be in the other gospel accounts that he does. Yes and no. Yes, in Matthew, eight or nine times, depending on the word used, he mentions hell. He speaks of hell eight or nine times. In the gospel of Luke, twice. In the gospel of John, zero. That's it. Now, he speaks of life and death frequently. Much in John, is, that's the theme of so much of John's writing, life and death. Those are countered, not heaven and hell. Heaven. Now, if by, I remember hearing distinctly in one of my evangelism courses in college, a college-level course, this statement, Jesus talked about heaven and hell more than any other topic. And that just sounds right. This sounds like something Jesus would do. And technically it is if, but it's misleading, because if we, if we assess heaven as kingdom, which we see the juxtaposition right here in the passage, right? He speaks of entering life, entering life, entering the kingdom. He puts those two, those, those together. So if by heaven and heaven, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, if by heaven we mean kingdom, then Jesus spoke of heaven and hell more than any other topic, but that's misleading. It'd be like saying, you know, on March 2nd, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain and Guy Rogers combined to score 111 points. Wilt scored 100, <laughs> and some guy scored 11. A true statement, misleading application. Jesus spoke of the kingdom and of life and entering life and therefore, if that's heaven and heaven on earth, kingdom on earth, kingdom come, he spoke on that topic more than any other topic. He taught on it. He used parables for it. He taught his disciples on that. Hell, not so much. Yes, so here we go. It's very important, I think, for us to understand a little more about hell or how we've maybe been misled about hell. And to make it maybe worse, um, the word hell isn't even in the scriptures. This word hell is probably a derivation of the Anglo-Saxon word helia, which may be a derivation of Gehenna. From this passage, the word that we have in English translated hell is actually the Greek word Gehenna. It's a literal place. Geh meaning valley and henna meaning hinnom. Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And that is the most common Greek word used translated hell throughout the New Testament. So if you are reading your Bible or hearing preach as we heard today, and you come to this word in English, hell, it is most likely Gehenna in the Greek. Once it is Tartarus in Second Peter, he uses the word Tartarus from Greek mythology, uh, some kind of realm of Hades, and therefore other times it is Hades, just a few times. It is Hades. That's a transliteration. In the Greek, that word translated Hades, also from Greek mythology, this idea that from the Greek perspective, what happens after you die, where do, where, where do souls go into the grave, this place, this Hades, ruled by Hades, the god of the underworld. That's a transliteration. That word in the Greek is Hades. So in English, we have Hades. We haven't tried, tried to 
compare that to some other thing. We haven't, we haven't tried to interpret that for the reader. Biblical interpretation is very difficult because that may not carry forward any kind of meaning from, from the author to our ears today. And so translators have att- would attempt to try to bring, bring a modern understanding and parlance to the scriptures for right understanding. That's the motivation, for right understanding. But it would be better in a case like this to simply bring forward, like we do Hades, and in the Hebrew scriptures, the word most commonly, if ever translated hell, is Sheol, another kind of under-earth, under grave, murky place, because their understanding of what happens after you die and where the souls go was very murky and misunderstood. So in English, it's good to have Sheol, because we would pause and say, what does that mean? What is Sheol? And either ask one another, ask someone that studied it, or with all the resources we have available to us at our fingertips, look and search and try to discover for ourselves what does Sheol mean. So it would be better to read a translation like this, simply bringing forward Gehenna. Or, more directly, what, what Jesus was referring to is the Valley of Hinnom, a literal place. So that we would pause and say, what does that mean? Thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. Is there some history there? Absolutely. <laughs> Something Jesus was directly referring to. When we think of heaven and hell, so many images come to our mind. And so, when we, when we hear this word, who knows what has already been inserted there for us from, from just osmosis of living in culture. What do you think of? Is it some medieval art like Sistine Chapel or other, other depictions of, of hell or heaven? Or is it a more modern depiction? Think of like cartoon images of a man with a pointy fork and tail and wearing red tights. Terrifying, terrifying. So I, I asked my eight-year-old son this week, Freddie, what, what do you think of when you think of hell or what do you know of hell? And he paused, and he thought for a moment, and he said, it's, it's the worst place you could go in life. Okay, anything else? It will teach you to follow God and trust God. Interesting. I asked him where he learned that, and he said, I don't know. I said, have, have I ever taught you about hell? No. Good, intentionally. Have you been, do you, you talk about hell? Have you been learning it at, at church or in kids' class? No. So where do you think you've learned it? I don't know. So do you know anything about Gehenna? Never heard of it. Then he paused and he looked at me intently and said, Dad? And I said, yeah. Can I go play Nintendo now? <laughs> but see, at eight, at eight, he has ideas about hell and has no idea where they've come from. Intentionally, because of, as you'll see me progress here, we don't talk about hell in our household. We talk about walking in the kingdom, the kingdom of life, God's kingdom, knowing him, loving him, his love for us, and what it would mean to enter that. That walking outside of God's kingdom is is the opposite of life, is apart from God. That's what we talk about. And I suppose I'd rather he knew something about Gehenna and nothing about hell because that's what the Greek scriptures use most often is Gehenna. We can more rightly understand what Jesus meant by Gehenna and maybe put this passage into context and then 
Consider, and I think for except two times, every time you hear Jesus speaking of hell, it is Gehenna. This might help us reframe and maybe not be as misled with this concept. Jesus was not talking about afterlife here. He was talking about a real place, using it as a metaphor, which could extend to an eternal trajectory, which is often how he spoke or the prophets would speak, something that is now or is a reality now that will become a greater reality later. There's often layers to prophecy through Scripture, and clearly Jesus was a prophet and spoke in the tone of being a prophet. He was so much more than that. But he's juxtaposing Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, with what it means to walk in the kingdom, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of restoration. The Valley of Hinnom was a literal place to the south-southeast of Jerusalem. It was first mentioned in the Bible in the book of Joshua as a border between some of the tribal lands. There are the tribes uh, coming out of Egypt and that long journey. They came into the land and that long journey, and they distributed land. And there were borders and barriers. You know, you had to look, use some, some natural barriers and borders and lake, uh, ri- lakes and rivers. And the valley of Hinnom, this valley outside of Jerusalem, was one of those borders. That's when it was first mentioned. But it has a pretty ugly and tragic history, this valley. It was in this valley that the evil king Ahaz, Second Chronicles 28, sacrificed some of his own children, likely from his concubines or whores in, the, in, the, in his temple, and burned them by fire, his own children, tragic, following ancient pagan rituals of child sacrifice. You can read about that if you're interested, Second Chronicles 28. It was in this valley, this valley of Hinnom in the Hebrew scriptures. Jeremiah condemns this practice, and there's an extended passage here, Jeremiah 7, 30 through 34, four verses that I think will help put into perspective some of what Jesus is picking up on and what his first hearers would have heard when they interacted with this concept. Jeremiah 7.30, the people of Judah, speaking on behalf of God, people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the son of Hinnom, Gehenna. They have set up these high places in this valley to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it even enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. See this everlasting sense of death. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voice of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. Very harsh words from Jeremiah to a people that were in in resistance and opposition of God. And so this literally happened. The valley of Gehenna became a, a tomb. There's, there's archaeological records, it, multi, multiple tombs. They would often be so full that it would need to cremate many of the bodies to make space. So constantly burning flesh and death in this place. There's also extra biblical evidence that this was one of, one of the refuse dumps or garbage heaps and they would often burn their trash in ancient times. Where else, what else would you do with it? 
And so there was constant fire and decay and death and lifelessness with this tragic history of child sacrifice in this valley. That would have been well in the mind of the hearers when they heard Jesus make this, these strong words, this strong contrast. But let me just pick up from verse 47, back to Mark 9, verse 47, and put in Valley of Hinnom. And how do you receive it with a little bit of that background? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It'd be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the valley of Hinnom. To be cast in. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in the valley of Hinnom. Although he's quoting from Isaiah 66. Jesus was not talking about an eternal torment or an eternal conscious torment in what we might maybe think of when we hear the word hell. He was talking about an actual place maybe with an eternal trajectory, this concept of continuing to walk in opposition of God and his kingdom has this result. And it would be better to be crippled or half-blind or lame than to to have that be your story, to have that be your end, because it's a tragic one. The contrast is the kingdom of God. Where the valley of Hinnom is death, fire, decay, tragedy, loss, outside Jerusalem, the temple, that's God's presence. This is outside God's presence. These are some of the metaphors he's he's using. And he's comparing that as a tragic end, just like he did earlier in the passage when he said it would be better for you to be cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck. Those two parallel each other. Two horrible, tragic ends. And so rightly, we receive these words a little differently when we have some historical background. Now, in no way am I minimizing the the significance and the strength of his words, the consequence, the, the judgment, the end of walking apart from God, of opposing his kingdom. And we have to remember what he's primarily addressing here with his disciples, what we looked at last week, is they were restricting access from some of the last and the least to come to Jesus. The little ones, the word is mikron, these little ones, whether that's little children or the man who was driving out demons in Jesus' name who maybe knew nothing else but was putting his life on risk to counter evil. And Jesus said, don't stop that. That's kingdom work. Let him come. Let him be. You are restricting access. You're denying the least and the last from coming into my kingdom. Jesus had harsh words for that. It would be better to cut off a hand, to tear that out, to rip it out. He wasn't wasn't being literal by any means. He was saying, but with force, could he say it even stronger? It would be better than to continue on this trajectory, which is being cast into the valley of Hinnom, and perhaps with an eternal trajectory as the prophet Jeremiah was hinting at. Let's talk about heaven. Let's talk about the kingdom of God as Jesus juxtaposes here. Be better to enter life, to enter life, to enter the kingdom in any way. That's what Jesus was after. That's what he taught again and again. Living in God's kingdom is heaven. Dwelling with God, knowing God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Notice the present. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know it now. Heaven and earth, eternal life, overlap in the here and now. It's why Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or is near, or is coming. It's here. 
That's why he taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This overlap, this merging, this mingling. God's kingdom presence is now. It's not just, it's not just a future reality. In fact, for Jesus, it was less a future reality than it was a walk in it now with an eternal trajectory. And so if kingdom, of hev- kingdom and heaven are synonymous and they mean fullness and abundance and joy and peace and freedom and wholeness and life and love, then the opposite of that, of God's kingdom, of walking in his kingdom, he chooses to grasp this as a metaphor, the valley of Hinnom, death, decay, waste, brokenness, destruction, darkness, separation, sadness, loss. This is what he's juxtaposing, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. As we've seen repeatedly through Mark, heaven is not merely this future reality, but a present one. And so it makes sense, in contrast, that hell is not just this future reality, but a present one. This concept of hell, of opposing God's kingdom, of opposing his presence and will. According to the biblical authors, it's like a living death being outside now, outside and excluded. And the trajectory of that is final death. Not immediate, not a a physical death. In fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 1 through 3, when sin came into the world, Jesus speaks of sin here, so I think we can see that parallel. When sin enters the world, so does death. That's That's what Paul said in Romans 5. Death entered the world. Remember the consequence. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Death, but more accurately, death will be yours. Death will come. And and the accuser or Satan, the serpent, says, you will not surely die. Look at the fruit. And in fact, the fruit was found, Genesis 3, 6, to be good for food and pleasing. It wasn't a death fruit, and they ate it. Did they die? No, but death entered the world. An opposite of walking in the kingdom and in God's presence. They were now excluded. The consequences were hell on earth, to use our phraseology. Hardship, toil, pain, in childbirth, in relational tension and turmoil, and separation from God's presence, and slow decay of our physical bodies. Death has entered. A living death. And since that point, God has been at work to redeem, to renew, to restore, to bring back, to recover. But we have now lived in the life that is off kilter from the one that we've been created for to image God, to dwell with Him, to represent Him, to cultivate good, to multiply and be fruitful. We are living outside of his kingdom so often, pursuing our own desires, our own life, our own fulfillment, cultivating what is good for us. And it seems to be that that has an eternal trajectory if we choose to live that way. Many of the misunderstandings of heaven and hell might stem from a misunderstanding of the first part of the story. If we misunderstand the first part of the story, then it makes sense that we would get further and further off. Just like if you started a journey, a long airplane journey, a couple degrees off course, the further you travel, the further apart you go. 
Since the beginning, God has been in the process of this redemption and renewal, and that's the storyline that threads all the way through scriptures, that Jesus has come to fulfill. Whoever believes in this story, in this God, leaves hell, leaves the living death, and enters heaven, enters life here and now. Jesus speaks as if it is done now, not just some future day. Back to John chapter 5. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's a present, there's a now reality to walking in the kingdom, to hearing the word of God, the gospel of his restoration and renewal, and can find it now. Something will happen to us when we die. Wouldn't you like to know? So would the biblical authors. Their best estimate and guess was so, so vague and misunderstood. It's not something that God revealed. It's something he continues to not reveal to us. What happens when we die in that moment? There's only a few, just a couple passages that, almost, that might indicate those, those moments and what happens in, in God's eternal cosmic timeline. We see one of them with the thief on the cross next to, to Jesus, where Jesus says, today, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think we often focus in on paradise and not on life with me. Today you will be with me. That's what we should focus in on. Not the, well, what happens? And what does paradise look like? And what moment? And what time dimension? Because we're simply not given that. The Bible seems to be, and the biblical authors seem to be much more interested in what, what N.T. Wright has called life after life after death. Something happens to our, our eternal souls and selves after, we, after these physical bodies die, and that is completely unknown from the biblical perspective. You won't find that teaching besides murkiness. That's the idea of Sheol and Hades anyway. What you find is life after life after death. What Jesus, when Jesus comes to restore his kingdom and renew his kingdom, the vision of John in, in Revelation, of what that will look like when God restores his presence, when the garden is renewed, except now it's a city, and he is the king, and he rules. It's, it's life after, life after death that we have incredible hope for. And in the meantime, we live commingled between heaven and earth, the kingdom of life and the valley of Gehenna as contrast. The psalmist, and the psalm I'm guessing most of us have heard, Psalm 23, verse 4, said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For those who have believed, truly, for all who believe, we have crossed from death to life. Jesus teaches on life and life with him in the kingdom, repeatedly. That's the emphasis of the gospel story. In John eleven twenty five, 25, a story of death, the, uh, where Lazarus has died. And Jesus encounters Martha and Mary, his sisters. He says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Was Jesus actually saying that these physical bodies won't die if you believe in me? No, and they, they knew that. He was talking about the, this grander story of life. 
Believe in me and don't fear death. Believe in me and death has no sting. Believe in me and death is put to death. Consistently, daily, you have life in me and life abundant, life forever, life with an eternal trajectory, day by day. The gospel is not how to escape the fires of hell for eternity. That's not the emphasis of the, of the story and of the gospel and of the teachings of Jesus. The gospel is how to enter life in wholeness, to be saved, to be renewed, to be delivered. If it was, if it was to escape the fires of hell and the judgment of an angry God, Jesus might have mentioned that. Instead, he contrasts what the trajectory of living in the kingdom would look like. I know I grew up in a tradition, maybe like many of you, that has shaped, which shaped my view of hell or my ideas of hell, like maybe like my son who picked up things not knowing where, although I have some specific memories that you might as well, maybe under this tongue-in-cheek phrase, to scare the hell out of you so that the heaven can come in. And that's not the trajectory and the message of the gospel and of scripture. It's by in no ways to minimize that the trajectory of a life that opposes the kingdom will have significant, perhaps eternal consequences. And that we should vitally be pursuing the life in the kingdom and the hope of the kingdom that Jesus offers and draws us into. We've often fallen into the trap of living a life under God, that he's an angry, wrathful God and is going to smite if we don't do the right thing, say the right thing, believe the right thing, earn the right thing for our whole lives. And that's a life under God. It's not a life with God that we've been invited into and intended to live. Jesus says in John 20, John, John says in John 20, verse 30, as he concludes his gospel, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, these, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may escape the fires of hell. You paying attention? No, it doesn't say that. That by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we are proclaiming this. That's why we are willing to give our lives for this life and life to the full. And so we ask again today, do we believe? Do I believe today? That we might believe and have life in his name. Do we want to see more heaven on earth and less hell on earth? Do we believe again today? Do we pray the prayer that we've seen right in the same chapter of Mark 9, the desperate father who prays, I believe, help my unbelief. There's this ongoing renewal of our faith and our belief. As long as we live, as long as we have breath, that we are meant to walk in the kingdom, to live forever beginning today. If I could summarize the gospel, I would say it is that. To live forever, begin today. Or if you want to say begin again today. Live forever begin today. So we are re-beginning as we always are. If eternity is long, then we are all just beginning wherever we are in our walk in pursuit of God. And by God's grace, we have breath today to begin again, not fearing death and not fearing tomorrow, being conscious of what it would look like to walk in opposition of the kingdom of God and how tragic that could be, but invited 
into the life, the resurrected life of Jesus today. And perhaps we begin today by shedding some of those misconceptions and, and false beliefs that we've had that have been given to us, not through Scripture, but through some other means and some other source, that we would walk in the kingdom of God today. As I've heard said, and maybe you have too, if you are comfortable or want to be comfortable with your beliefs, with your faith, with your theology, then for heaven's sake, don't read and study the Bible. It will mess you up. But if you want to fall in love with an eternal, infinite, good God and be stretched in all ways, then for heaven's sake, read and study the Bible. It will take us deeper and richer. And I'm probably leaving you with many more questions than you came in with today. Isn't that my job? There's fantastic resources out there. I turn you to uh, Tim Mackey with The Bible Project. I think many of you probably follow along. If you haven't, he has some great teachings and resources on this concept of heaven and earth and hell, the afterlife, what we know, what we don't know. I turn you to N.T. Wright as well, a great living theologian, and his resurrection of the Son of God specifically on these extremely powerful, life-changing concepts. When Jesus was speaking, let me finish with this. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about death and resurrection, as he often did, but in this, this account in John chapter 14, you may remember, he says, I'm going, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. When I preached through John, this was one of the most challenging passages to get, to get my head around. So admittedly, I, I put it in there for us saying, I, I, I can't yet teach what, in fullness what Jesus was meaning, and the disciples didn't get it either, right? The response from Thomas, when, when Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going, we would probably respond as Thomas did in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? How can we know the way, God? How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what Jesus is saying to us to Thomas and all the Thomases, the Thomas within us that says, I don't know the way. When we come to concepts like this that say, I thought I knew and now I, I, don't know, I don't know as much. What is the way? Jesus says, you know exactly what you need to know. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come to me and to the Father. Trust in me and follow me. And I will lead you. So again, we submit to him in trust and in hope that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what walking in the kingdom will look like, the ways of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Pray along with me, however God and the Spirit is stirring you. Father, we thank you that you have us on an eternal trajectory. And for those who believe in you and put their Hope in you, however meager that feels at times and small that feels, and with all of our doubts and uncertainties, things we would like to know, things we would like your scripture to make clear to us that are not clear. We come to you, I, I pray in that humility, and I pray with that childlike faith that can take a deep breath, hopefully like Thomas did, when you said, I am the way. We bring our uncertainties with that same, same heart of this life, of death, of the death of loved ones, of, the, of what happens, our souls, our hope in heaven, 
but our uncertainty and lack of clarity. We come to you with it all. And we say we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us, God. Grow us in every way. Draw us into your kingdom of life. May our lives emphasize the same emphasis that your scriptures teach, that your prophets proclaimed, that your servants spread the news throughout the earth, that you are life and you have come to bring life to the full, to reconcile us, to adopt us as sons and daughters of the King. May we emphasize life and wholeness, forgiveness, grace, and mercy in you and you alone as we walk in your kingdom this day and the days to come. For those in here that are being renewed in their faith, and maybe in, for, in some ways it's an it's a, it's a all-new faith, Lord, bless them. Fill them with your spirit. Thank you for the gift of repentance to turn from one trajectory, from one direction of life, to see things more rightly and to turn to you. Thank you for repentance. Thank you that we can confess our sin, our inadequacy, our rejection of you, our dismissal of your promises, our failure to live into them, to do the things that we don't want to do, to not do the things that we know we should, just as Paul said. We confess, Lord. Thank you for the gift of confession and of repentance, and above all, your grace, your life for us. We walk into your kingdom with another step today. And to your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.